This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Sunday, February 25th, and this is Doing The Thing. I'm James Gilmore, and I'm here with Ashley Styles and Nathan Eckersley. And they're both from Wizard Radio Station, and we're talking about everything happening in our world this week. How are you guys? All good, thanks. And you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing great fantastic well if you're listening live on wizard radio station where we do the thing live every sunday from 8 p.m uk time you can get involved by tweeting us or dming us on instagram and twitter at wizard radio text us at no extra cost only standard network rate supply 07807 183538 and all of our details on our website wizardradio.com i feel like this conversation that we're going to have today could happen at any point this year and i feel like everything we're all going to say could be completely different this is such a big year of democracy obviously i I feel so lucky to be joined by two of wizard radio stations leading kind of current affairs and politics hosts and you both take uh, very different topics every sunday nathan often looking more on kind of domestic matters and actually looking exclusively almost at international matters uh, but the thing tying both of these things this year is the fact that more than four billion people are expected to be voting in elections globally in 2024 including obviously the general election in the uk and the presidential election in the us how are we feeling about this ashley Uh, Well, as you say, it's going to be a big if democracy. It's in an interesting way, internationally, it's sort of always this, because these things sort of roll on and on, you know, you have overlapping elections and such. But there are some big ones coming up, you're right. I think it's been possible to deny that the American presidential election is going to affect, in more or less tangential ways, pretty much everybody in the world. It will be of consequence. Britain, perhaps less so, but of course, if you live in Britain, which I believe all of us do, it's obviously pretty consequential uh, from that perspective. Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right to point out there's billions of people voting this year in, uh, I believe it's over 40 countries, 40 major economies. So I'm 
I've got, I've got a, a list of some of them here just to try and get an insight into just some of the huge changes that could potentially happen here. So uh, as Ashley rightly pointed out, we've got the UK and the US, but in addition, we've got India, Belgium, Finland, Iran, if you can call that a free election, uh, Lithuania, Pakistan, Portugal, Russia, apparently, uh, South Africa. We had elections in Taiwan earlier this year and, of course, the European Parliament. And so all of these things are going to have huge geopolitical implications, again, as you point out, Ashley, and especially some of the European ones, because you know, this weekend marked two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. European countries respond to that conflict, how they continue their support to that conflict, is essential for each of those elections, but also with the outcome of the US presidential election and uh, funding Ukraine is becoming a major talking point within uh, American politics at the moment. Do we think that the entire world might look different by the end of this year? Or, you know, because sometimes we have elections that actually aren't that consequential, but does, I'm, I'm getting the feeling, Nathan, from what you've just said, that actually it, the world could be very different by the end of this year. I think there's definitely a case to be made for that. And yeah, in, in a number of countries, you're actually seeing the, the politics of those countries sort of head in a somewhat more right-wing direction. So if we take Argentina, who had an election at the end of last year, they elected a libertarian as president in Javier Milai, who's t- taken some interesting choices so far. He's already abolished the central bank. He's half the size of government. And so, you know, you've, you've got that side of it. Uh, a number of European countries have um, elected uh, right-wing governments recently. You've got Italy with Georgia Maloney. Uh, India's obviously up election as well. Uh, you've got Hindu nationalist in Narendra Modi. And it's almost like the UK seems to buck the trend in that sense by seemingly going with a Labour government whenever this election is called. And so I think we're going to see a very different outlook on the world if many of these elections go as expected. Yeah, I think India was interesting when I was I was just thinking about that um, as, a, as a big example of a, you know, it's it's not yet the biggest population in the world, but it is predicted that it soon will be, uh, you know, you're talking well over a billion people affected by the outcome of that election. Um, and it seems to be not a foregone conclusion per se, but it's it's a drift, uh, as you mentioned, a sort of right wing drift that's happening in a bunch of places. In terms of like the UK bucking the trend, I think that's mostly because you know, they always say British politics is more like left wing than American politics in terms of like the Overton window. I guess it's kind of true, but it feels less true recently than it has been maybe historically. I think, you know, we'll talk about the differences later on between the various options at the table. But I think it's, it's going to be a Labour government. It's not going to be a particularly ideologically forward Labour government, I guess. Mm. Do you think that listeners or or voters i guess actually have a choice if we look between let's start off in the uk seeing as, as that's what we were just talking about um there's been a lot said on a lot of shows here on wizard radio station about you know whether labor been a good opposition or not and as you were just saying ashley that like are Keir Starmer's policies actually labor policies do people have a choice realistically and is you know what does that say about what the outcome of the election might be i think yeah definitely people do have a choice and it may seem like there's a lot of similarity and i think in the uk again especially people have a a fair right to be aggrieved that it doesn't appear that 
a lot of the policies being put forward by Labour at the moment seem particularly distinct. But I think if you look at the parties holistically, part of what sort of sparks in my mind is the current Tory front bench, and especially the most recent Conservative Party convention, um, and some of the really, really sort of out there, a lot of like American imported cultural type things that are becoming now sort of mainstay of the parliamentary Conservative Party, even if that doesn't, you know, strike with voters, that's the direction it's going in. So if hypothetically they would win another term of government, they may be beholden to those shifts. You get sort of, you know, Kemi Badenox, Lilla Braverman type, you know, we're going to make this really extreme. Um, so in that sense, I think there is a choice. Because uh, even though it maybe was two different flavours of kind of austerity politics, there's a different tenor, if that's the right word. Nathan? Yeah, yeah. You've certainly got individuals within the Conservative Party who do veer more towards the the, the right of the party. Uh, but at the same time, you actually take the, the policies, take this 14 years of Conservative government, if you like, and compare what they've done and what they're pledging to do and put them on a policy platform next to Labour. Not much of it really is that different. A lot of it is a larger role for the state. A lot of it is you know, if you like nanny statism, it, you know, so much of it is about a broader role for the state, a more centralised, centrally planned economy. And so actually, when it comes to that election, yes, I know, I know most people are preferring uh, what Labour is offering. But ultimately, I think putting the policies to one side, you know, the, they're looking very similar to each other. It's more about who you want to be in government rather than a particular agenda that's uh, you, you want to vote for because I think looking at certain polls and speaking to people at the moment is going to be a huge issue when it comes to the next election I mean Ashley you're nodding your head there a lot even though Nathan at the beginning did essentially disagree with you so I'm interested well, to see d- disagree disagree on that element perhaps of like you know maybe it's more about like uh, uh, the apathy side of things that's what I agree on is that's going to be a big factor really I would say in terms of like if you want to divide between the two i i wouldn't say really that it's like running for the same thing in, in fact because of this well i mean part, part of the rightward shift is in part because kisama has adopted so many similar policies it's definitely true that there's a lot of similarity between the two at the moment um i think that's engendering uh in terms of difference in opinion here in terms of engendering a a more acerbic kind of conservatism that's coming to dominate especially like yeah the parliamentary party and they're the ones who ultimately within the cabinet, set the line for the policy. But I think when it comes to the election, the apathy thing is definitely true. You're going to have a lower turnout this time than last time. But I also think that that's a consequence of the past 14 years of Conservative administration. I think it were the recent by-elections, the line that uh, Rhys Mogg came out with was, this doesn't prove that people like Labour, it just proves they don't want to vote for us. But in a first-past-the-post voting system, if they don't want to vote for you, that's as big a problem because they only need to win the most. You know, it doesn't matter if they're not voting for the other guy, if they're not voting for you, you're still going to lose that election. And it's going to translate, especially because it's not a proportional system. By the Conservatives' own design, it's not a proportional system. Um, That's going to translate to a lot of parliamentary seats for Labour, even if there's like a big apathy wave in the election. Mm. I, I guess one of my concerns is that the direction, and we've spoken about this a lot on air today, actually, on Wizard Radio between Lakika's show earlier, Nathan, your show today, around just this, like, feeling of anger and intense anger, which I, I think 
does come a lot from that dissatisfaction. There's a message that was read out on uh, on Nathan. It may have you, may have been your show um, around the idea that the government has straitjacketed the British public. Um, and all of these kind of crackdowns on protesting and, you know, trying to increase police powers and, and ultimately also, regardless of that, just not listening to public ba- public backlash that much and, you know, treading ahead with whatever they want to do has led to this, to this intense anger and frustration. And I wonder, regardless of an election outcome, is that something that we think is going to change in British politics? Because as a society, that's a really toxic place. And if that doesn't go soon, I think that starts to infect so many other parts of public life. What do you think, Ashley? In terms of like the big things like that, the policing bill was the big one um, in terms of like trying to limit people's rights to protest and free speech. I don't think it has had its perhaps intended effect yet but that doesn't mean that we won't see changes going forward I, again i think the big thing will be a change administration mostly just because I, I get the vibe and this is purely a vibes based assessment you might call it uh, editorial that uh Kirsten would be less willing to employ or deploy those sorts of uh both the bill that was passed but that bill was passed and i don't think he would repeal it so um even if the next administration isn't doing the super heavy-handed well actually no protest no free speech whatever uh, any successive administration could because it's on the books now. Equally, anybody could repeal it, but he, but I don't think they will. I don't think the political will to do it, but also because it's seen as a sort of experience, oh, well, it's nice to have this in our back pocket if the public get a bit too uppity. I think with a lot of what we've seen, like Extinction Rebellion, uh, Just Stop Oil, I think that there's still very much a desire and a drive to express um, that sort of dissatisfaction in material ways. Yeah, it's an interesting point you've made out, Keir Starmer, there, because, yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think he would repeal the police crime sentencing bill and any of the restrictions on protests. However, on other bills, he's actually said that he would support the government on certain limitations, like uh, some, something I've, I've spoken about quite a bit on my show is the online safety bill. Well, now the online. Ooh. So, Keir Starmer and the. the uh, other Labour front benches have said, actually, the online siege bill, yes, it's very strong in some areas, but we need to take it much further. Well, to me, that, that would be wholly unacceptable in our democracy, in our British democracy, particularly on the issues of free speech, where some of the uh, the uh, clauses state that uh, that you can offcom can sense legal but harmful content. Well, who to determine what would be classed as harmful? It would be a, a, an anonymous civil servant in Whitehall. And again, any issues within that. So you're right. I, I think there's some sense of cherry picking among Keir Starmer's policies on that. I think that's, yeah, definitely the case. I think that's part of his image, you know, how he sort of branded himself uh, as the kind of I'm the law and order guy, I'm Queen's Council, you know, I'm now King's Council. I'm going to be the guy who's like uh, firm and hard on these sorts of issues. Not, not in the sort of same way, but I think that's definitely probably his angle that and a lot of those bills that online safety I don't think it's going to have any sort of intended effect it's just uh not even red meat it's just filler meat you know for uh for manifesto padding basically I mean if we're talking about the online safety bill one of the things that has been discussed in some circles around this is the fact that like in some some parts of this bill is the government's attempt at protecting people on social media 
which is like a decade late, uh, at, at the earliest, a decade late. We're now going into a whole new chapter of technological development with artificial intelligence um, and chat GPT and these things changing the world. And there are already calls for some sort of government or parliamentary intervention to help to create the framework to stop this thing from, you know, drastically impacting jobs, you know, uh, taking other people's rights that they own, and I mean kind of creatively, and ripping that off. What? How are we feeling about confidence-wise on the government's ability to... on? And when I say the government, I actually kind of mean any government's ability to protect people on this. And do you actually think that now is even the right time for that? Nathan? I think, yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, Nathan, yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, the, the, so I, I come at this from somewhat of a, a free market position in the sense that you know in, industry should be able to innovate to its heart's content. Government should uh, be able to facilitate that, not so much restrict it and provide provide it with a little red tape. However, James, as you rightly point out, there are tremendous issues with AI, not least on um, th- things like preserving rights, um, the, the issues around mimicking people's voices as well, intellectual property, uh, the fact that it has an impact on jobs. You know, we have to be acutely aware of what AI can do and the impact it will have on the economy. So there needs to be some kind of framework around how we develop AI. But something I don't trust governments, and this is government more broadly, not just in the UK, but around the world, something I don't trust governments to do is to not be heavy handed with it. AI has the power to really change our world for the better. I, I really believe that, and it, it's already producing amazing technological advancements and innovations, particularly in medicine and healthcare and innovation, all, all that side of it. But if governments are too heavy-handed with it, if governments decide to be too restrictive with its regulations around it, then I think that's going to have a much bigger economic impact on all of us than the potential job losses that come as a result of AI advancing into being more and more commonplace. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to take a slightly contrary position there in terms of uh, the perspective, well, just in terms of like, the AI thing and government regulation. I will admit, I don't know really what the best way to deal with the regulation on AI is. I think, though, that a total deregulation of that is not the ideal way to go, especially with what we seem of like how it's affected Google and SEO stuff, pumping out basically misleading information and turning search engines effectively useless. We've seen it in a number of high-profile plagiarism cases in universities. We've seen people basically trying to use it to scalp markets, to cut writers out of pretty much every industry that writing is a part of. I think there's definitely some solid use cases. You mentioned science and technology. Biology in particular, I know, is a big one for AI and looking at permutations of diseases and medicines. But I think that not attempting to do anything might be kind of like all the online safety things. It would be too little too late. It'd be approaching the problem 10, 15 years down the line uh, and then going, oh, whoa, what happened? Were we asleep? You know, oh, there's been all of these developments and now it has pervaded and pervaded everything. And there is no way to put a genie back in a bottle in that sense. Oh, yeah. Of course, there has to be some kind of regulation around it. So, you know, of course there does. It's such a, a new technology and we're already seeing the potential that it can have, especially in kind of AI artwork as well, and how it's really blurring the lines between, you know, fact and fiction in so many cases. And 
I mean, one of the prime examples of that is when ChatGPT first started creating the AI artworks and you had the um, dripped out image of Pope Francis in his Balenciaga puffer jacket. You know, so many people got caught out about that. And so undoubtedly, there has to be some way of monitoring those changes, whether it's having AI to detect the AI and applying labels to it to show it's a generated image. You know, that would be a responsible way of regulating. But create having governments create regulations to say well it can't do this that and the other and a, a huge list of all the things it can't do to me that would be too heavy-handed too restrictive and provide so much red tape that actually you'd start to hinder the effects of the ai and it would have a more negative effect economically i mean that is it's so difficult i mean i don't know if you've seen i've forgotten what it's called but um open ai who are behind chat gpt unveiled a new tool this past week or the past two weeks mm. uh, which are much like the kind of text to image ai tools this is a kind of nearly and it's not quite there yet but a nearly photorealistic text to video um ai tool which is incredibly dangerous i i think that nathan one of the things that your argument kind of balances on is this idea as to whether humanity can kind of be trusted because there is this fine line which i think a lot of us find on on ourselves on which is the incredible opportunity that ai presents those risks you're right it's going to be impossible realistically for any government i think to balance one without the other unless they're like approving ai applications on a case-by-case basis which is not possible or the right way of doing it either so i guess the question is can we trust ourselves as the public the global public to be able to like let the market you know well if this is damaging people aren't going to use it I mean, I would suggest that with social media and the state of play, just with personal and private data and how that's been manipulated, I would suggest that we probably can't trust ourselves. Ashley, what do you think? James, if you ask me if I trust the free market to do anything, I think you're going to know what my answer on that front is. I think the big problem really is, well, one is for me, it's kind of the same as the uh, crypto thing, is energy efficiency. The technology in its current state is extremely energy inefficient and you end up with a huge swath of people using it kind of basically freewheeling and this is one of the things you know my friends have produced some extremely funny AR images and it's funny every time i see them they'll come they'll come at me with something new and I'll, I'll laugh at it but there'll be a little thing a kill draw thing in the back of my mind going yeah how many gallons of water did it take to produce this image come at the frog as darth vader um it was funny to see but was it worth that and of course that's not you know the bulk what it's being used for but in that sense, uh, the sort of totally open usage in that way, I don't think it's producing meaningful changes. And in terms of like, you know, would you want to weigh the economics of it? What is the economic benefit versus the societal benefit, especially if Google becomes unusable because companies are using AI uh, generated text to hack SEOs so that now all the top search results are things that are just sponsored by AI companies and then actually tell you the answer to the question, we've lost something that was a very valuable service in the pursuit purely of a profit margin and then well then where's the benefit really to anybody but a small handful of shareholders well i think the other side of it though as well is you know the way that using your google example the way that google is going to go is actually you're going to just get ai search results and there's no such thing as an unbiased ai in the same way as there's no such thing as unbiased journalism and so we're now letting kind of uh, whereas 
I think with the media and the press, whether people do or not, that we have a freedom of press, a freedom of media, and you can go and um, and read whichever outlets you like. You know, there's only a handful of companies that can invest in successful services. This probably isn't going to be a zero-sum game. It might be a, a two-sum game uh, with companies. And so then you have people in Silicon Valley dictating rights and wrongs, dictating information. I think on the environment environment factor, that's really interesting as well. And I know a big story on the tech side right now are the chip manufacturers and development being done to make more efficient and effective chips um, as well. But anyway, Nathan, what's your opinion? Yeah, I think on the regulation of AI, I, I would take somewhat of a, a more philosophical position on it. So it, my, my on it would be that of the, the classical liberal philosopher, John Stuart, who in his book on liberty, he came up with this idea of the harm principle, which is that people are free to say, think, do, act however they want, up until the point that you are bringing harm to another person or another organization. And to me, that's how we should treat AI. You know, leave it to do what it does up until the point where it's starting to bring actual harm to broader society or to individuals. So again, how would we find that? Well, if we AI images, if it's starting to fabricate images of people without their consent, for example, organically, then that was that would be a natural regulation in which we could put on AI. Again, that would be a bit of the free market working its way in, into the regulation sphere, and that would be a government response to that. But fun, fundamentally, I think a lot of it is going to be down to discretion. Now, trusting governments and politicians, legislators, to use discretion when coming up against major global organizations like Google as well, and you know all these Silicon Valley tech bros, and everything. you know that, that that's going to be a tough battle. But fundamentally, there does have to be a sense of natural regulation or organic regulation around how we approach this. But on on your point, James, about the um, silicon uh, the silicon chips as well, that links into what we were talking about earlier with democracy, and in particular the semiconductors. You know, the, these are issues that's affecting the whole world, particularly with Taiwan as the world's major manufacturer of semiconductors. You know, they've just had a, an election where they've elected a new president who's going to defend their right to autonomy. But as Taiwan's the world's largest manufacturer of semiconductors, obviously, by doing that, that's a, a provocation to the government of China, who's obviously trying to position itself as the major um, tech player going up against the United States and Japan and other major economies. But, you know, go, going back to AI for a sec, you know, I think a lot of it will have to come down to discretion ultimately. I just, before I, I go to you, Ashley, I guess um, on that, it's whether we can trust once the cat's out the bag. I mean, you have it already with, if you look at like piracy on the internet, which is now officially a decades old problem, it's still whack-a-mole. And, you know, these tech companies are incredible at solving the problems that they want to solve. And even Facebook, who have been fined globally hundreds of millions of dollars in fines, still just can't quite figure out how to take down content that shouldn't be on their platform. And so it's how far we trust these systems to actually be able to uh, regulate themselves um, at that stage. Ashley, what do you think? That's the fascinating point about the, uh, you know, Facebook 
taking the fines and then also not solving the problems. It reminds me a bit of the uh, the 1973 Ford Pinto scandal, where Ford released the cars with the fuel tanks in the trunks, which are very, very dangerous. But rather than doing a recall on those dangerous cars, they wrote this internal memo, which basically said, we crunched the numbers. It would be cheaper to just let people die and pay the cost of legal fees than it would be to actually recall the cars. That's what they did. Um, and that ended up being a big scandal in the 70s. It's obviously very different kettle fish, but it's like for Facebook, well, they're going to find us $100 million. We're going to make a billion dollars from the ad revenue from all of these videos of, you know, AI generated content, say, you know, uh, horribly racist things from like this place or whatever place, or, you know, um, we've been, been paid for the harvest data. We're just going to do this, that, or the other. It's fine. Um, because the bottom line is, if that's what is, you know, the viable decisions they're going to choose. So that's sort of chasing regulation. You don't want it to be whack-a-mole. You don't want to play too much catch-up. Or you don't want to be too trying to think too far ahead about things. But my, I, I get my heckles raised when I sort of contemplate the idea of, nah, let's just see how it goes, you know? Mm. Well, um, but let's continue this conversation and see how it goes after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Doing the Thing on Wizard Radio Station. I'm James Gilmore and I'm joined by Ashley Styles and Nathan Eckersley. Well, I wanted to talk about um, a kind of next topic going off of what we were just talking about at the end of the first part of the show. We're talking about AI and technology and... Um, you know, you'd have to be hiding from the news if you didn't know about the many layoffs happening in the tech center and the in the tech um, what's the word I'm looking for? sector is what I'm looking for, not center in the tech sector um, at the start of this year, first couple of months. You know, hundreds into thousands of jobs um, have gone in many of the major big tech companies. This obviously started last year as well. And it's moving over into arts and entertainment spheres as well. Um, and it makes it, I think, pretty scary to be in this sector and to be entering the job market in general in 2024. Ashley, um, we were talking about this in the break just now. I'm interested to know your opinion. So in terms of the big like redundancy, specifically in the tech sector, um, 
and at Google. This has been sort of described to a trend uh, that was described, uh, Cory Doctorov, the writer and uh, journalist, sort of identified a, a pattern whereby this is sort of one of the final terminal stages of what a lot of big tech companies end up doing in terms of basically attempting to press a profit margin effectively in terms of the layoffs. Do they need to lay these people off? Not really, no. They could continue to afford to continue to pay them to work and it would probably serve the platform better and you would be able to make a profit. Problem is, profit has to increase year on year. That's what shareholders demand. So the way it sort of works, especially for the example of Google, is you first of all make a product that is indispensable. You come up with a good idea, you market that, sell that. Then you start popping the end users, make it difficult. For Facebook, that's, you know, you start pumping out loads and loads of unskippable adverts, same with YouTube. Uh, for Google, you start promoting sponsored content. But then, once you've done that to the nth degree, and you can't do that anymore, and you still want to extract value, the only place left to do it is the workers who work for you. So you strip that right down to the bone until you do no more, and then eventually the company either dies or it just sort of persists in a sort of unlife, I guess. So I think in this instance, that may be why this has happened. Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And like, particularly with the tech industry, you're, you're right that, you know, AI particularly, as we were talking about before, is replacing so many jobs. We, we just can't get around that. But it's not just in the tech industry. It's in so many different areas and industries and, and sectors. But particularly when it comes to the, the, the tech industry as well, it, so I think this is actually going to bite the tech industry further down the line because, yes, AI can do a lot of the coding jobs, it can do a lot of the programming, it can do some, some of the front-end stuff that uh, end, uh, software engineers can do already, something that you can't do, something a computer could never do, something AI can't do, really is just a, a human element something. And so particularly with the tech industry at the moment and uh, various STEM subjects, if you're going into that sort of field, something a lot of employers are looking for is whether or not a person has studied something like history, philosophy, because you can bring that broader context to something. You can use your critical thinking skills in a way that AI simply can't do, or, well, certainly can't do yet. And so whilst there, there is certainly an issue with all these um, jobs being taken by AI, uh, you know, huge uh, vacancies within the tech industry that are being filled by programs. Ultimately, further down the line, I, I think uh, the companies will go uh, end up doing a U-turn and actually start hiring humans again, because you do end up losing that human connection and ultimately your product will suffer. And then you'll, 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 you'll see profits going down and ultimately do a course correction. I don't, Here's the thing. I do think there's a disconnection genuinely between good product and revenue and and you, people using them. Think about how many products that we use every day where the user experience is just terrible. I mean, if you're in the UK or in the EU, any website you go on basically that's trying to advertise to you is a terrible experience. Yet we all, like the market hasn't shifted we've all we have just accepted that it's really annoying that we must waste over the course of a year so much time clicking off of cookie tracking things and you know proving that we're not a robot signing up to mailing lists and having to go in our emails and click that we actually meant to do that verifying to the bank that we are who we say we are and yet we've all just accepted it as part of life. And I guess 
my worry, because Nathan, I, I hope what you're saying is true, but my worry is that it isn't, and that actually it's just going to end up being this awful user experience for everybody. Um, I do think, I would also say, actually, there's a part of it where I think a lot of companies have been overstaffed. Uh, you've had a lot of tech companies, particularly in the tech space, actually, uh, over other sectors. And there's been lots of tech companies that have had these wild moonshot projects. They've had staff there, overstaffed, just to get staff so that other people can't have them. It's a well-known thing, particularly in Silicon Valley. And now that the kind of metric on Wall Street in particular has shifted from growth in whether that's revenue or users to actual profit and that having to grow, as you said, Ashley, as well. Um, I think that's a really dangerous cycle. Having to grow your profit every year, at some point, you're going to be left with one person in a room with a server. But like, you know, there is some, I guess maybe some of it is a bit of right sizing. Ashley, what, what do you have to say? See, you know, I, I don't know to what extent that's the case. I think on like a broad enough time scale, yeah, you know, you can, a company equally can't continue to hire employees forever. But I think if you look at the profit margins of companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, you know, take your pick. Um, the product itself pays for itself in that way. You know, I don't think it would have harmed Google's well profit margin ultimately to any noticeable degree to continue to have paid those employees hell even if you're talking about paying their pensions like way further down the line it's not gonna hit them in the same sort of way um just because the profit's already so great the issue is is that the profit needs to continue to grow the shareholders and the board members are going to be looking for is the line to keep going up even past the point where that's sort of realistic in terms of how that affects like a u-turn in terms of corporate policy my worry is that you'll end up with something like stack ranking, which was introduced to General Electric in the 80s. The policy of firing the bottom 10% of your employees, regardless of how well they performed. It was introduced purely because that would generate a profit for shareholders. Uh, and it did. Uh, GE's uh, stock price skyrocketed when they introduced stack ranking. It caused the company to enter basically an endless downward cycle, which it's still in. Um, it was a very short-sighted policy that's effectively still used by a lot of businesses today, even though it was known at the time and now that it was not going to be an effective thing. So I, I, I do wonder whether this is a sort of modern form of stack ranking, uh, this sort of worsification, let's call it, in the sort of radio safe version. Yeah, I, I know. I think that's interesting. It, it's interesting as somebody that spends a lot of time in the music industry, you're seeing, you know, over the past five years, a lot of the major music companies went public on the stock market, um, which is a kind of newish thing uh, for the music industry to be at the scale that it is today. Definitely 20 years ago, the thought of this was impossible, um, are now existing within this marketplace where you know profit is the most important metric are simultaneously realizing that most of the music that people listen to is not new music it's stuff that doesn't need to be marketed because it was marketed 20 30 40 years ago it's that the older music is where like 90 percent of the revenue comes from and so what you're seeing in the music industry are hundreds and hundreds of people losing their jobs at all levels of the company but i guess a part of the problem between the music industry or the entertainment industry as a whole versus tech is that whereas tech has always been seen as having these very cushy jobs working in entertainment and media is the opposite experience it's actually you know lots of long hours 
notorious kind of ill treatment, toxic work cultures, and now you're adding in there a threat of losing a job every single day in the current market. And I do think that for people going into the workplace for the first time, people leaving school or graduating from university, the economy of getting a job and that kind of agreement, that kind of unofficial social agreement between employers and employees has been broken. And I think it started being broken actually like with employees refusing to go back to the office post-COVID, whether you agree with that being necessary or not, like I hate working from an office, I love working from home. Um, but, you know, regardless of that, the kind of employees stage a little bit of an unofficial revolt in refusing to go back. And now you have the other side with the reason why people might work in not great conditions in kind of the 21st century of long hours kind of not being paid as well in your industry as if you were in another industry but because you felt like there were perks and you had some safety and security there that's now been broken as well i just think it's creating a really challenging marketplace i'd imagine if you're going looking for a job for the first time nathan what do you think yeah i mean on the you made about the headcount in in the tech world i mean i suppose a good case study for that would be when elon musk bought twitter you know as as soon as he came in i think he fired like 65 70 percent of the entire workforce of twitter because he's he decided they weren't doing anything and there are a few teething problems when that first happened of course there would be just dismissed thousands of people overnight but nonetheless it kind of corrected and it's what it is working again and you know doing new stuff with that smaller headcount so yeah, there, there is a case, certainly in the tech industry, for uh, not not necessarily clearing house, but just reassessing those stru works, working structures, reassessing how your company is operating, and you know, the, the, if, why have three people doing one job when you, when one person can do that adequately? But I think in the broader workforce, you know, the, of course there are some jobs where humans have to do it just purely because that's the type of job it is so as an example uh, my i work in fundraising and a lot of that is literally going out and speaking to people understand, understanding why they're interested in a particular cause why they would want to donate to that that's something ai could never do that's something a computer could never do however at one time you would have argued that well you, a, a robot or an ai uh, sentient software could never be a surgeon but actually We've got ro robotic surgeons now, haven't we? You know, you've got surgeons operating robots to do those really tiny laparoscopic surgeries. There's no reason today, given the advancements, you can apply an AI to that. And that robot could do that surgery knowing exactly what to do and make no mistakes. So it, uh, whilst I can see the point that actually that there are some major concerns about the broader economy and the effects of AI, fundamentally, there will be some industries where it just won't take hold be just because of the nature of those jobs, but also the fact that we can find a, a way to integrate that and you know, make a just case for sort of lowering some of those headcounts in major bloated organizations. Ashley, what do you think? As a regular user, I would dispute the idea that it works perfectly good just at the moment, but that's uh, neither here nor there. Um, I think the main issue, really, in terms of if you are going to be reducing headcounts or something, you've got to replace it with something. And you've got to replace it with something that is not, um, you know, the absolute bare minimum in terms of, uh, you know, 
output because if you are going to have the economic system that we have where at least you know like, imagine let's say you used to work in a tech company in london and you get cut from your job well now you live in london so you either got to organize and move to somewhere that's cheaper or you got to pay your bills and the rent's absolutely insane and then outside of london within that field within that industry the jobs are just non-existent outside of a few small local nexuses the north is starting to develop some of that uh, a little bit of the southwest as well but largely it's either london or it's edinburgh and both places the rent's absolutely astronomical so if you're going to be slashing jobs you know even okay if you're just tripping the fat a little you have to find somewhere even if you're talking on a societal level for those people to go when they lose those jobs because otherwise you end up with people who just don't have money and that creates then the conditions for a broader economic downturn if you end up cutting people's jobs yes the company may trim the fat and sure the product may continue to work more or less as it did before more or less but it's not going to really see any major improvements in terms of the product itself you're not really seeing any major benefits for the company other than again increased profit for the shareholders and on a broader level you may end up with worsening because you've now got a bunch more people who are unemployed so if you don't find some way to redress that then it's a little irresponsible perhaps I would also just hint back to what we were saying about AI in the first segment, and I think on Twitter in particular, where Twitter has been lapsing in their commitment um, to monitor their content, to, according to some, some laws and statutes that Elon just cut those entire teams. And now Elon's argument, and not to go too far down the Twitter hole, but is that literally if he hadn't cut these people, this company would no longer exist. Um, which so I think it's anyway. There's interesting perspectives on, on both sides. I, another part of this I wanted to raise is the TV industry and what's happening in TV right now. Where over the past, and this is one opinion on it, but over the past five years, the amount of content that's been desired by streaming platforms has grown the industry to an unstable amount. That now that actually streaming services are being like, wait, we're making so much stuff, it's so expensive, and nobody's watching half the stuff we're putting out. Let's just make some of the stuff that we think people might actually watch. You have potentially a semi-permanent shrinking of the TV industry, um, or at least a shrinking that's now lasted the best part of a year. And you have to wonder, actually what actually to your point what's going to happen with these people because this is an industry that has arguably grown beyond what it can sustain i think it's definitely true if, if i may just briefly um for the tv industry in particular i think that's kind of part of part of the evolution of the way that viewing habits have changed in the sense like a lot of terrestrial television channels as well hbo has been having issues more just because no in america at least it's cable you know nobody watches cable really in America anymore, not in the way that they did in the 90s and the early 2000s, where they were then setting the growth expectations. And now things have changed so radically that then the instance it has become unsustainable. Mm. And you've people have also discovered, and we'll go to you in a sec, Nathan, but these companies are now discovering that the idea of paying £9 a month or whatever it is, £10 a month for an all-you-can-eat buffet of content, old and new, actually... The numbers don't add up for people. Nathan, sorry, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say it, it's not just TV where this is an issue, but it, it's film as well. And how major production companies are just trying to, as we've been discussing with tech and AI, absolutely squeeze every single penny or every single 
and to profit that they can add to this. Now, something I, I've been re following really closely in the last few months and something I'm ridiculously passionate about at the moment is the saga of Warner Brothers and Coyote versus Acme. Have you, have you been hearing about this? Yes, so I have. Th this yeah. is absolutely insane. The fact that Warner Brothers has piled millions and millions of dollars into uh, this kind of revamped Looney Tunes film of Coyote versus Acme based on the screen testing, it's a fantastic film, easily going to reboot the entire 70-odd-year-old franchise, and yet they've decided to shelve it, make it a tax write-off of about 70-odd million dollars, and then with the view to destroying it. Now, they've put, sent it out to a, a few different distributors, Amazon, Netflix, and maybe one other, saying, oh, well, you, know, you, you can buy it for the amount we're going to sell it as a tax write-off. And it was just such a ridiculous high amount that no one was going, prepared to pay that. It comes down to the fact that you've got actors, directors, producers, graphic designers, mu musicians, all, uh, costume designers, makeup artists, all the rest of it goes into making a film. That work just goes down the, down the drain for the sake of tax write-off. And so whilst film industries are doing that in the same way Warner Brothers did it with Batgirl as well, yeah, you know, th there is a concern that's actually... TV requires, in some cases, more work than a film because it's a much broader, longer story that, you know, we're actually going to start losing artistic uh, license and creativity simply in pursuit of pursuing a profit like this. Yeah. I think one thing that, you know, these um, companies, these media companies used to have some sort of altruistic goal when they were invented of bringing stories to the world i mean i don't want to go down this route but like it's always in this moment worth noting that like news in america started off as it had to be a loss leader it was the networks kind of um offering in to the um regulators in response for having airtime they would provide the public service of news that's now been monetized and that's one of the reasons why in america just the whole news industry is so destroyed so yeah i mean um I i'm glad you raised uh the batgirl thing as well nathan um and now there are genuinely shows you know we all got so used to the idea of having everything available i couldn't tell you where i could watch mad men in the uk now you know they um hbo or warner brothers discovery took westworld off of streaming services and i know this is you know back in back in the day you could have bought this stuff on a dvd if you wanted to own it they're not really manufacturing dvds of this stuff it's making life as a consumer really difficult ashley what do you have to say i think that was a fantastic point to raise about uh uh versus acme and batgirl in particular uh for me i have a lot of friends in the creative industries and uh resultantly i was following the sack after strikes um when that was ongoing. Uh, and I think just in general, the way that a lot of, uh, not just actors or writers, but again, you mentioned like it's the producers, it's the tech people who do like the CG for a movie, like, uh, well, for either of those examples, really. Um, it's the people, you know, who even manage the craft services or whatever. It's the whole industry that comes together. You ask any of them, did you, did you make this production so that it would be a tax write-off? The answer is an emphatic no. We did this because yeah, it's not necessarily high art, but it's a movie. It's a production. We put ourselves into it. It's something creative, and you know, it it does tell a story. We didn't do that so that it could be shelved and then destroyed purely for the profit motivation. It's a it's kind of a slap in the face to the people who make the film. You know, beyond being relentlessly cynical. Yeah. 
And then you have stories. I don't know if you've been following the Alec Baldwin um, case where, you know, one of the reasons why such a horrific incident with a crew member dying on set is because the budgets were squeezed so tight that you had people doing multiple jobs who should have just been focused on one thing. And, um, you know, that's obviously a story in itself with twists and turns, but it'll be interesting to see what impact something like that might actually have on health and safety because to the people setting these budgets, they're not actually the ones at risk or in this case, and I'm so sorry for the pun in the firing line. James. That was oh, so James. terrible. <laughs> 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 yeah. Nathan, sorry, I feel Anything. like you had a comment. No, no. Um, well, I was, I'll just leave, leave that pun hanging there. Yeah. Now. But, but um, <laughs> no, it's. I mean, ju- just going back to Coyote versus Acme for a moment. I mean, mm. uh, and again, trying to bring it back into AI as well. I mean, a- AI was one of the main issues in the SAG-AFTRA strike that you were mentioning about, actually. And yeah, when it really kicked off that Coyote versus Acme, the musical director—I I, I forget the person's name now—but they'd. Uh, Really, really the, the video of when they're recording the main musical set piece for this, which was a version of Beethoven's Ode to Joy done in the style of Roadrunner, just going meet me all the way through. It was genuinely, it was brilliant to watch. It was fantastic. It was so well done. Mm-hmm. And you, the, the guy made the point that, you know, we put hours and hours and hours into this and it's just going to be shelved for attack write-off. And so... You know, this is this goes back to the heart of the creativity point I was trying to make earlier. You know, AI can be great. You know, it can do film editing. It can do some of the graphic design. It can do other parts of it. But fundamentally, you can't just you can't get away from the, the human spirit. You can't get away from the fact that that it takes a human to come up with an idea of I, I'm going to turn Beethoven's Ode to Joy, that world-renowned piece of music, into Roadrunner's Meet Me. You, you know, a computer can't come up with that. Ashley, um, we are running out of time. Ashley, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, final thoughts is it's uh, kind of a tragedy, you know, the way that sort of uh, unfolded in terms of uh, for all the people that worked on those productions um, and the fact that, again, it just seems that the industry has perhaps in light of challenges, and they're real challenges, but the response has been to become relentlessly cynical and to say, well, okay, if it's going to be you or it's going to be me, you're the one getting cut, I'm the one making a profit. And that that's the seemingly the trend that is uh, disheartening. Uh. Yeah. Well, it has been a pleasure having this conversation over the past hour. A big thank you, Ashley and Nathan. That's all we've got time for on doing the thing today. Um, Ashley and Nathan, where can our listeners find you and hear you? Maybe we start off with Ashley. Ah, well, if you want to find more of me, you can just wait five minutes because I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm up next on uh, Ashley Styles Live. Uh, we're going to be talking about some international news uh, topics over the course of another hour. So, yeah. And Nathan? Uh, yep, you can find me on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday at three o'clock or you can find me on Twitter at Nat underscore X fantastic remember to catch new episodes of doing the thing live on wizard radio station every sunday from 8 p.m uk time and on all podcast platforms from monday morning we'll see you next week see ya
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.